Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the fall of 1960, a controversial figure faced a major test. The man was John F. Kennedy. And the test, in some sense, was religious. Kennedy had to prove that he would not confuse worshiping with governing, that the papacy and the presidency would not be interlinked. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act. And no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. Where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference. And where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. When America was young, Thomas Jefferson had written that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. But in the last several decades, a different vision of church and state has helped to fundamentally reshape our politics, an evangelical vision. It was invented by leaders who understood that evangelical Christianity could recast American government and that something new could emerge. But like building a successful business, building a new brand of politics happened step by step, and perhaps no one has taken more of those steps than the phenomenally popular Reverend Billy Graham, who has met and often influenced presidents since Harry Truman. But he was particularly proud of the inroads that he made, starting with Kennedy's predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower. He said, do you know any good Presbyterian churches in Washington? And I said, yes, I certainly do. To make a long story short, he joined a church and the minister baptized him publicly. As president of the United States, he took a public stand for Christ and he chose as his favorite hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Daniel Williams is author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, and he's a professor at the University of West Georgia. He joins us to talk about how evangelicals reinvented politics. Daniel, welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So if we go back to that test that JFK had to pass in 1960, um, in some ways, I think people would think he passed. I mean, he became president. But in some ways, he did not, because that speech that I played uh, was given in Houston, Texas, to a bunch of Protestant ministers. Um, and he, JFK largely failed to get Southern Protestants to support him. And you can talk about this, but you say after JFK won, evangelical leaders like felt terrible. Yes, they felt like the Protestant establishment that they had enjoyed in the Eisenhower years was no longer there. And so in many ways, they started to react against that. I think the full mobilization of the Christian right did not occur until the late 1970s, but you could see seeds of that developing uh, even during the early 1960s with reactions uh, against Kennedy, 
uh, reactions against the uh, Supreme Court decisions on school prayer and Bible reading, uh, and mm-hmm. concerns about the moral drift, the perceived moral drift of the nation. What was it in the 1960s, uh, do you think, like, after, obviously, this Catholic president had been elected, that made evangelicals feel like we can have growing momentum here, that we can change politics, that there can be sort of a rising tide of evangelical influence? Well, there were several things. One was that evangelicals themselves were becoming more educated. They were gaining access to the corridors of at least uh, media power. Uh, that became more mm-hmm. apparent in the 1970s than in the 1960s. But uh, there, was a, there was a growing level of, of socioeconomic power um, on the part of, of some conservative evangelicals. And at the same time, there was a perception that they had uh, that the nation was changing for the worse. So uh, in the 1950s, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, in their view, had been their friend. Uh, he had been very uh, willing to bring references to God into his speeches on the Cold War. It, famously, mm. he, in his, uh, at his inauguration, he led a prayer and, and then repeatedly invoked God. Uh, and John F. Kennedy didn't entirely distance himself from that. He continued to embrace some aspects of the civil religion, but there was definitely a shift. And there was also a cultural shift in the nation. The beginning phases of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, for example, um, by, by the mid to late 1960s, a, a growing anti-war movement. And so evangelicals who, were, who identified with, with cultural conservatism and political conservatism felt on the defensive, perhaps more than they had uh, in the previous decade. Can you give me a sense? Um, obviously, evangelicals are Protestant, but what uh, makes somebody call themselves an evangelical and not just you know, a Protestant? Like, what's the distinction? If you ask, if we ask somebody, what, what would they say? Right. Well, I, th- I think that's an excellent question. And it's actually, the answer to that uh, is more complex uh, than, than one might assume, because I think the boundaries, uh, especially in the 1950s, were somewhat porous. But in general, when people talk about evangelicals, uh, they tend to define that by someone who believes uh, in the authority of the Bible, someone who believes in personal salvation, uh, through uh, faith in, in Jesus, and someone who has uh, at least uh, a leaning toward an evangelistic uh, style, that is, to, to try to convert others uh, in order to be part of uh, the Christian fold as well. Um, they would recognize that evangelicalism is a particular Protestant tradition that perhaps uh, can trace its roots back to the First Great Awakening of the 18th century and then the revivals of the 19th century and then on into the 20th century with both the fundamentalist movement uh, and Billy Graham and then the Christian right. Uh, It's not identical uh, with Christian right conservatism. Not all evangelicals are Republican, but it has certainly had a close relationship in the 20th century with the conservative tradition uh, so that evangelicals who have not identified with conservatism have certainly been fully legitimate evangelicals, but have been a minority, a political minority within their own tradition. Mm. So here's a question that gets a little bit into scripture, um, but I've wondered about it for a long time, actually. Um, If evangelicals believe in the authority of the Bible, um, and maybe more literally than, than some other Christians, and then you take uh, the famous line from Jesus, uh, you know, where he's saying that a camel is more likely to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man is to get into heaven. So I wonder about that because, you know, this is the gospel. But in America, 
almost everybody wants to get rich. So if you believe that the Bible is pretty much right, it's hard to question it, um, how do evangelicals square that and accept rich people or, you know, like, or even try to make money themselves? There are evangelicals on the left, perhaps most famously uh, Jim Wallace and, and Ron Sider and a, a few others who have pushed back against that evangelical alliance with capitalism. So not all evangelicals would fall into this camp, but I think you're right in saying that the vast majority of those in the United States would, and especially in the time period that we're talking about, the 1950s and onward, there was a very close relationship between evangelicalism and capitalism. Uh, what I would say is that evangelicals in general in the United States for the last two centuries have made peace with the marketplace, both by emphasizing uh, salvation only by grace through faith. And in other words, they would read that particular verse from the Gospels and then want to follow that up with the statement that Jesus made, with men this is impossible, with God all things are possible, and, and emphasize that you know mm. even the rich person can be saved. But then the question is, well, why would you strive to get rich if you know this is, this is actually going to, <laughs> uh, to be at, at odds sort of with the message of Jesus? To make and, things harder. And they would say right. that... Um, they, they would view themselves in some way as redeeming the marketplace. That is that they've evangelicals have tended uh, both in the 19th century with people like John Wanamaker and then in the present with people like the Green family associated with Hobby Lobby uh, and everywhere in between. Evangelicals have tended to believe that a faithful evangelical Christian is going to make money and then use that in some way to further the kingdom of God, support missions, support uh, evangelistic enterprises, even in, in the case of the Christian right, support uh, conservative political programs. And so in some way, they view themselves as, yes, engaged in, a, in an activity that maybe in and of itself um, would be problematic. And, and they do talk about the temptations of riches, but that can be redeemed by someone who is, who's trusting the Lord and then using those riches to further the kingdom of God. So that, that's the way that, that American evangelicals have in general navigated this mm-hmm. tension between right. uh, riches and faith. Let me uh, bring into this conversation Darren Docek, who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, which looks at the move of many evangelicals from the South to other parts of the country, specifically California. Um, And Darren, I I wonder if you want to weigh in on this issue of faith, which Jesus says means stepping away from riches. And like, how does that work? How does that square with capitalism in America? Um, And then probably not incidentally, we obviously have a very rich president who was supported by evangelicals. So do you want to comment on this tension and, and just what we see going on here? No, and Daniel stated it very well, uh, the theological uh, and, and some of the tensions as well within, and that that point is worth emphasizing. Again, there is a long tradition of uh, taking a social gospel seriously uh, within evangelicalism. Uh, certainly into the 20th century, there was uh, plenty of incentive within a large uh, kind of number of evangelical communities to support the labor movement, for instance, uh, and to assume progressive causes. This goes back to abolitionism in the mid-19th uh, century. What, what we would think of now, it sounds like evangelicals used to support what we think of now as kind of liberal causes. I mean, the labor movement, right? right? And right. social justice. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and taking that, that verse that you stated earlier, uh, again, to heart and, and seriously. Mm-hmm. But, but again, there's also pragmatics involved here. There's also socioeconomics. Uh, 
theology matters, but it also is, I think, wrestled with uh, in changing social circumstances. And as the 20th century unfolds, in the early 20th, we've got uh, the rise of a very prominent liberal social gospel, which according to many evangelicals is taking kind of the social justice side too far to the detriment of this kind of personal salvation as the core message. Uh, And then again, especially as Daniel emphasized in the 1950s, and we've been talking about Eisenhower, uh, in the war with communism, this becomes an an all or nothing uh, scenario. And capitalism is wedded to Christianity, to evangelical Christianity quite firmly at that juncture. With regards to Donald Trump, of course, what we do know is he was able to seize on this kind of pro-capitalist side of evangelicalism, especially the prosperity gospel, which is itself is a creation of kind of the post-World War II moment, uh, where all of a sudden, especially in the poorest regions of the country, those inhabited by thousands of Pentecostals, uh, mm. they are seeing their own lives transformed uh, by the rise of a post-war economy. And for many of them, uh, that becomes justification for a gospel that doesn't just support capitalism, but says uh, quite explicitly that we receive our blessing and we uh, can kind of fully articulate it through the success that we uh, generate in the marketplace. And, and mm-hmm. so it's not just uh, you know, kind of two realms wedded that, at that point. They are very much folded into one, uh, one logic and one rationale. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Darren Dochuk from Notre Dame and Daniel Williams from the University of West Georgia about how evangelicals and religion affect politics. Um, Daniel Williams, uh, how would you describe the uh, current evangelical political fl- platform and how would you say that it has changed over the last 40 or 50 years in terms of like what the top most important goals are? Well, I guess about 40 or 50 years ago, as the Christian right was emerging, the priority was to make the nation Christian once again. And I think the people who were most prominent in the Christian right of the late 1970s and early 1980s were largely people who had been born in the 1930s, people like Jerry Falwell, people like Pat Robertson, and then uh, someone who was emerging on the scene, uh, Jim Dobson, uh, James Dobson of Focus on the Family. And all of these people were part of a generation that had uh, reached political consciousness during the early years of the Cold War. Uh, and then they had seen the changes of the 60s and 70s, and they believed that they could essentially turn the clock back, so to speak. But hmm. as evangelicals moved into the 21st century and as a new generation came to uh, dominate the political landscape, I I think that evangelicals, while still retaining some aspect of that, uh, were no longer as confident that they could recapture uh, the nation's institutions. And so certainly in the last election and in several election cycles before that, uh, the major priority was not necessarily to make the nation Christian once again, but as they would see it, to protect their own uh, religious liberty. Abortion uh, moved to the top of their agenda, followed closely uh, in the uh, late 90s and and early 21st century uh, to opposition to gay rights and to same-sex marriage. And in some ways, the modern uh, Christian right, while far more decentralized than the Christian right of the late 70s and early 80s was, retains that interest in trying to protect against what they would see as a violation of social justice in in the form of mm. abortion, and then in the in the case of opposition to uh, to LGBT rights, they would see that as protecting their own religious liberty, and and that I mm. think is a shift in the early '80s. Issues of religious liberty weren't quite as prominent when Jerry Falwell spoke out against 
what was then widely described as homosexuality in the in the early 80s. Uh, he was doing so not to protect the rights of churches or, or evangelical Christians or evangelical institutions. He was he was actually trying to restore what he saw as a, a moral standard that was sliding. Whereas I think uh, today uh, there's there's more of an emphasis simply on protecting uh, the rights of of individuals and institutions, uh, perhaps not to not to endorse this or not to be affected by it. And, hmm. and in some way, that's a retreat uh, in, the, in the culture wars um, and also a, a shifting of priorities and perhaps a sign that, that evangelicals sometime in the 1990s or thereabouts uh, began adopting some of the language of pluralism and, and huh. uh, liberal-based rights rhetoric uh, themselves and talking about protecting their own uh, religious interests. Daniel, um, certainly... In the last election, even if evangelicals are on the verge of of splintering or diversifying in some way, we saw a lot of unity around President Trump. Uh, about 80 percent of evangelicals voted for him. 16 percent voted for Hillary Clinton. You know, you did have people saying this is a guy who's, you know, been divorced a few times. He owns casinos. But I, I talked to Francis Fitzgerald, uh, who wrote uh, the recent book, The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. And she said, interestingly, that many in the leadership, uh, in the evangelical leadership, did not like Trump during the primaries in 2015 and 2016, but their followers did. During the primaries, um, something like 50 uh, Christian right leaders got together and decided to vote for Ted Cruz. Uh, they found that uh, not many of their, their people followed them in this. Um, you know, there was, was a substantial evangelical vote for Cruz, but, but there was an even bigger one for Donald Trump, and this, this puzzled them um, uh, more than it even puzzles us today. <laughs> uh, Daniel Williams, do you want to talk about um, what was the appeal of this candidate, not an evangelical, but clearly... Uh, united most evangelicals behind him. Yes. Well, I think we have to differentiate between several stages of of the support. And so in the primaries, I think it's absolutely true that uh, Trump had very little support from evangelical leaders and some strong condemnations from evangelical leaders. And a few of those evangelical leaders, perhaps most notably uh, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention, continued that opposition through the general election and beyond. But most of the other evangelical leaders came around eventually, and because they were concerned about the Supreme Court, they decided to vote for uh, Trump. And had it not been for the Supreme Court, I'm not sure that they would have made that decision. Uh, of course, that's a hypothetical. And is that, would you say that is like 100% or close to 100% about abortion? Uh, it's primarily about abortion and overturning Roe v. Wade, but also in their minds about what they would call religious liberty. That is, they saw the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage. They were afraid of another decision on transgender issues or similar things, and they were afraid that very soon they would be on the wrong side of the law if they continued to oppose uh, LGBT rights. And so I there see. was a real mm-hmm. fear. And, and of course, okay. on the other side, many people said that the fear was exaggerated. But regardless of whether you think it was a legitimate fear or not, I think the evidence is that that was a genuine, heartfelt fear. That They feared that they would in some way be, and they, they commonly invoke this language, persecuted if things continued culturally in the direction in which they thought they would. Um, I think you're also right to note the difference uh, in the primaries and in the general election between the political priorities of of the evangelical leaders that tended to talk about 
mainly abortion and the traditional Christian right issues, versus those of what I would say that were the evangelicals in the pews, or in many cases, the evangelicals who didn't even show up at the pews. I mean, many of these people who voted call themselves evangelicals, but but mm-hmm. were less likely to go to church than maybe Republicans uh, voting in for some of the other primary candidates. And um, and that's an interesting phenomenon that has been understudied. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's clear that there is a cultural evangelicalism that is perhaps divorced in some way from the, the traditional pronouncements of evangelical leaders. And among those cultural evangelicals, uh, their political priorities uh, reflect a lot of what we would think of as rural populism, that is, uh, strong opposition to uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, strong concern about the loss of jobs to uh, overseas markets, uh, concerns about international borders, concerns about uh, U.S. foreign policy, and uh, in some ways, uh, if it's not a neo-isolationism, at least it's a strong uh, America First movement. And I don't think we yet know where this is going to go. I, I, I think it's still too early to make predictions about the future of the Christian right or the, or the future of the cultural evangelicals. But certainly the data from the last election would suggest that the picture is maybe a little more complicated than what uh, some have have assumed, and, and both Darren and I have emphasized some, periodically in this discussion that that evangelicals are are not monolithic, and maybe that's more apparent than ever that there are a lot of different subgroups within evangelicals that, in some ways, today are not even always on speaking terms. Uh, that you know, some some of them are are going in very different directions. Well, let me pick that up, and then either of you can take it. Um, we saw Lawrence Ware uh, recently, who's a black scholar, a minister. He's been in the Southern Baptist Convention for about a decade, say he was leaving um, because he saw too much support in the convention um, of the alt-right, uh, which clashed with his uh, commitment to social justice. So th- this can be for whoever wants to take it, but is that indicative of, of a rising divide or— of, uh, you know, a guy or, or a small group of people? Well, I, I think, uh, and uh, just to emphasize, uh, evangelicals are, as I've said earlier, pragmatic. They're principled, but they're pragmatic. Uh, and many of them in this past election, no doubt, were also voting uh, for pocketbook issues and voting for uh, racial issues. Uh, and however they position themselves on the spectrum. But uh, in large part, those with Trump, of course, uh, worried uh, about immigration and, and so forth. And so there's a spectrum of concerns that, that drove them and drove many of them towards Donald Trump. Going forward, uh, I think it's, uh, as I, I said earlier, uh, this could be a juncture. Uh, we have seen evangelicals, you've just mentioned one, uh, whether it be Latino, African-American, or uh, those who are trying to position themselves in a more centrist evangelical uh, evangelicalism, uh, trying to rearticulate what it means. Some are abandoning the term evangelical altogether because of its uh, mm. association with uh, the Trump movement and with politics in general. And, and that has been going on within uh, kind of intellectual circles within evangelicalism. Uh, young people uh, also, you know, kind of dissenting, expressing dissent through through their concerns and, and their shifts in concerns. And it's instructive, I think, to look back to the 1930s, talking about America first. I mean, yeah, America first is not uh, is not a new slogan. Right, and 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 America America first was in the 30s driven by uh, a large number of fundamentalists, uh, and it was an effort to distance themselves from that 
uh, kind of uh, political momentum uh, that the National Association of Evangelicals was formed in the 1940s. And so there was a direct response in many ways to the more radicalized politics of evangelicalism in the 30s to shift it back to the center. Billy Graham was very influential, uh, bringing evangelicals back towards a center. Uh, we could be at, again, one of those moments now where there is going to, because of the clear, forceful mm. articulation of the Trump America First agenda, there is going to be perhaps a, a larger segment of, of evangelicals who are going to say, we either abandon the term uh, or we totally remake this, uh, certainly within political terms, and, and again, reshift our focus. Darren Docek is the author of the book From Bible Belt to Sunbelt, Plain Folk Religion, Grassroots Politics, and the Rise of Evangelical Conservatism. And he's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. And Daniel Williams is author of the book God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. He's a professor at the University of West Georgia. Thank you so much to both of you. Thanks, Kara. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Kara. As the political power of evangelicals grew, one of their own emerged as a dark horse candidate for president. We will have more on our website about how evangelicals rallied around Jimmy Carter in the face of a media establishment that seemed to have very little sense of what evangelicals were. And then, four years later, why those same evangelicals abandoned Carter for Ronald Reagan. That's all at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Mimecast, nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. And now a story about the hidden influences on how we behave. Last year, a group of Stanford and Cornell researchers recruited research subjects and gave them two timed quizzes. Some got an easy quiz that they could just breeze right through, and others took a challenging quiz that was designed to irritate them. Afterwards, participants joined an online discussion about an article on the presidential election. And guess what the researchers found? The way you behave online is heavily influenced by what just happened to you, and it does not have all that much to do with how you normally act in the real world. We think that jerky comments online and jerky behavior come from jerks. Online, you might call them trolls. But research says that is an incorrect assumption. Online jerkiness is actually super contagious. If you want, you can think of this as a virus, like as the flu virus. That's Christian Danescu Nicolescu Mizil. He's an assistant professor at Cornell University's Department of Information Science. And he was one of the researchers who gave participants those quizzes and then had them do that online discussion about the presidential election. He says that his research and work from his colleagues show that the person you become online is heavily influenced by factors outside your control. Turns out that people have different moods depending on the time of the day and uh, day of the week. 
And what we find is that indeed people are much more likely to troll uh, on Monday and they're uh, much more likely to troll uh, late in the evenings, for example, and more likely to troll uh, even on Sundays, right? So Monday, the least likely trolling it's on Saturdays when everybody's kind of happy and uh, still has another we- uh, weekend day ahead. But remember, Monday is a dark day when it comes to trolling, not just because you're depressed that it's Monday, but because other people are depressed that it's Monday and their bad moods rub off on you. Our estimate is that about half of the antisocial posts out there, half of the trolling posts, if you want, are actually written by normal people. We have looked at uh, who writes trolling posts and half of trolling posts are actually written by people that have no history of being jerks in the past, right? So it's just a moment in their life or a moment in their online life when they happen to misbehave. I don't know that anybody really has no history of being a jerk in the past, but you get the idea. And the psychological implications of the researchers' results are a little bit sad. For example, I like to think that I'm a nice person. That is probably also what you like to think about yourself. And the notion that a nice person can be really mean, it's something we know, but it would be lovely to think that people are making their own decisions rather than being heavily influenced by others. Scholars' findings also mean that the way that websites have gone about protecting themselves from racist or sexist or ad hominem comments, it may not make all that much sense. It's not the person that you need to block, basically. That's what you need to understand, right? So somehow the strategy so far in many forums is, or in many discussions online or uh, online communities is, well, if somebody misbehaves, we're going to just block him or her. So we're kind of closing ourselves and like throwing everybody outside our fortress, and then we're going to all live happily. Well, it turns out this is not the case because most people have the germ in them. They can actually misbehave. And in the end, you're going to end up throwing away uh, or excluding a lot of people that maybe they just had a bad day. Dinescu Nicolescu Mizil says we've spent a long time trying to adjust our social behavior so that it fits certain standards. But online, we're stripped of all that info that usually tips us off as to someone's mood. Body movements, telltale ways that a person scrunches up their face, the look in their eyes. The Internet ha- gives us an amazing opportunity for discussion and for engaging with each other and for, you know, making the world a better place, if you want. However, we don't really know yet how to harness this potential, right? I think our communication techniques are developed uh, in the offline world for thousands of years. We have the internet discussions for, you know, maybe 20 years or so. We need to understand what is the better way to communicate, what, you know, how should we act, what is the right uh, designed for these mediums where, where we discuss, right? So there's all these things that we need to understand in, or, in order to, to use the full potential on the internet, right? Christian Danescu Nicolescu Mizil is an assistant professor at Cornell's Department of Information Science. He is a co author of the paper Anyone Can Become a Troll. We will link to it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn.
Let's say you're in a room with a bunch of people and you want everyone to like you. There's a bunch of ways to make that happen. You could be super nice and hope that that works. You could try to figure out if there's anything that the people in the room might need and that you could help them to get. But another way to get everyone in a room to like you is a little bit more ruthless. Just throw everyone out of the room who doesn't like you. Now, that may not be the high road, but it could work just as well if what you're trying to do is win a popularity contest. That, to some extent, is what politicians often do when they draw political districts. It's called gerrymandering. And a lot of people believe that our politics are as polarized as they are, in large part because of gerrymandering. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a major case out of Wisconsin looking at how political parties can redraw districts to serve their own ends. Law professor Justin Levitt, who's an expert on gerrymandering, believes that this decision will rest on the same make-or-break factor as a lot of the most high-profile cases before the court. I think it depends on what Justice Kennedy has for breakfast. Levitt is the associate dean for research at Loyola Law School. And he says that in 2004, the justices split over whether courts should get involved in telling lawmakers they're being too partisan. Four conservatives said courts should not get involved. Four liberals said, yes, they should. And there are tests, in fact, that we can use to see if things are getting too partisan. And Justice Kennedy was sitting just as he is now, squarely in the middle, said, I don't like any of the tests you've shown me so far, but I don't want to shut the door just yet, so come back with more. Levitt argues that gerrymandering is only one factor in the dysfunctionality of politics today, but it's one that literally hits close to home. What we can really point to is whose voices get heard, Hmm. and that's something that redistricting has direct control over. And Hmm. to the extent that people feel like their voices are not being heard, Um, It is absolutely the case that the way we draw district lines uh, has everything to do with that. Mm. So, I mean, one of the things that you hear political pundits say is, gee, if you look back a few decades, there were a lot of swing voters. There were a lot of swing districts. And and those kinds of districts can elect more moderate people, right, people who are sort of less polarized on the left and on the right. And now hardly any swing districts anymore. Is that because people did honestly just harden their views and become far left or far right? Or is it because the people are still there, but the districts aren't there because somebody drew them out of existence? It's a little bit of both. And I'll say, if you look back even decades before that, people had pretty hardcore partisan polarized views. There was a period of time from roughly the 30s to roughly the 60s when uh, there was a lot more moderation in American politics, uh, generally. And before and after that, it's gotten pretty intense. Uh, So this may actually be, in terms of polarization, maybe more of a reflection of how things used to be. It's also the case that a district that's roughly 50-50 doesn't necessarily produce more moderate elected representatives. Um, So one way to win voters over is to be moderate enough that you can get people to switch party allegiances or consider voting for you even if you're not of their party. Mm -hmm. But another way that you win elections in a 50-50 district is to drive up your base as much as possible and try and encourage the other side to stay home as much as possible. And those conditions describe an awful lot of what we're seeing today as well. Mm -hmm. So it has, I think, less to do with designing districts that are more 50-50 The district lines do play a role, though, because when you draw districts purely around partisan preferences, people lose a sense of what they're electing representatives for. 
That is, most of us have a real sense that our representatives are supposed to do something for a territorial community, for a group of people who live somewhere near each other. Right. And when you have a district from uh, my part of the state or when you have a district from my city or my county or, or something that's local and geographic, then you know whether your representative is doing right by you or not. There's a way to measure that representative's performance on something other than just their party ID. When you have a district that splits that up and you have a district that is just drawn for Republicans or for Democrats, mm-hmm. it's much harder to know whether your representative is performing on any basis other than how's the National Party doing. And that tends to drive a lot of polarization. You mentioned before that there was a time when we were super polarized. This is also a time when it feels like we are pretty darn polarized, but that there was a moment, you know, maybe between 1930 and 1960, I think you said, when we weren't as polarized. Was there a time, like after 1960 or in the 50s or something, when there was a turning point or something about the way we drew districts changed and it pushed us to getting more, you know, into sort of getting more polarized as we are now? I think in part it had to do with who was in the political system and who was not. I mean, part of what made the political process a little less polarized in the from the 30s to the 60s is there were a lot of people who weren't functionally in it. Um, and you can't talk about that period without recognizing that uh, an awful lot of minorities were excluded very consciously, very intentionally. Hmm. And as you bring new people into the system, you have new tensions flare up. There has always been a struggle for political power. And I think some of the conditions of World War II and the prosperity the country enjoyed tamped some of that down for the people who were already in the system, but that Mm -hmm. wasn't working well for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to acknowledge. The polarization that the redistricting process has furthered and the fight over the ability to control the lines has, I think, gotten worse over the last couple of decades, not because of a new technological innovation um, or not because of a new set of rules or a new set of court rulings. I think it's actually been a breakdown of norms where conduct that we wouldn't tolerate in any other legislation, legislators have tried, seen that they can get away with, and then decided, well, let's see what we can do some more. Yeah. It's like a kid testing. Like, can I push that? Oh, yes, I can. Well, could I, you know, could I push it a little farther? Oh, yes, I can. I mean, it sounds like that's what's been happening with gerrymandering, that once things that would have seemed unthinkable, they become thinkable. Yeah, in large part, that's right. And and the kids have gotten pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> Is there like a district or two that you can think of that you've come across in your studies where you feel like, effectively, they are drawn in such a way that people's votes are kind of being taken away or like that these are not good representations of who is sitting in that state, let's say. Texas is a great example, and it's a great example because it's in a way equal opportunity. Democrats in the 90s in Texas engineered an enormously effective gerrymander uh, to keep themselves in power, even as the statewide tides were shifting. Hmm. And they ended up with a, a fairly significant disproportion of Democratic seats compared to how the state, it's clear, as a whole was voting. Hmm. Come the, the 2000s, actually, Republicans turned the tables mm-hmm. and committed what I think is a wrong of their own. Um, that is, they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they gerrymandered the districts in order to uh, entrench their own political prospects and tamp down Democratic political prospects. And 
in the course of so doing, you know, sort of swung the pendulum the other way, which which doesn't make it right. That's often right, held up right, as a defense. Right, right, right. Um, they did it too. Yeah, right. It is absolutely the case. I mean, you describe it as kids. Right, it's, right. It's like kids it, again. It, exactly. Well, she did it. It's not far off. Right. <laughs> but the fact that the pendulum swings so violently in the other direction then swings so violently back, every tit for tat gets escalated even further. Uh-huh. Now, the the particular way that Texas has gone about it actually infringes on the rights of racial and ethnic minorities there. They have chosen to target racial and ethnic minorities as the vehicle for um, encouraging partisan gain. And as a result, I think since Texas started redrawing districts every decade, there was a series of cases in the 60s that make sure we all have to redraw districts every decade. Since they started, I don't think they've gone one cycle where districts have been upheld by a court. I think every 10 years, courts reliably strike down Texas districts. And then what happens? Do the politicians redraw them in a more in a way that the courts think is OK? What happens when the courts say, no, this is discriminatory? Uh, you can come back to your kid metaphor again. Sometimes huh. the courts step in and let the kids have another shot at it. Uh-huh. And sometimes the court steps in and says, you know what, we've had enough. We're going to do this because we see that you can't. So when you look at Texas now and who gets elected to Congress and who gets elected to the state legislature, um, would you say that the people who are representing the state, either on the national or the state level, that that is an unfair representation of who lives in the state? I would say both that it's an unfair representation of who lives in the state and particularly the Latino population of Texas uh, has been the primary engine of the growth in Texas. Texas has gotten a lot more congressional seats in the last couple decades because the Latino population has grown so quickly. And that representation has not been echoed emphatically in Texas's representatives. But even more than that sort of global unfairness, I think that if you look at the way the districts are constructed... There are a lot of communities that feel like they don't have representation, that they may be part of a district, but that that district doesn't keep the community together in a way that they get to tell the representative, hey, here's what we want. Go represent our interests. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Justin Levitt. He's a law professor and associate dean for research at Loyola Law School in L.A., do other countries do things this way when they elect parliaments and that kind of thing? Are the people who have the most to gain sitting there with pencils, like drawing who they want to vote for them? No, it's a great point. We stand virtually alone in that. We are the only major democratic Western system that allows the people who have the most to gain or lose by where the district lines are drawn to actually have the pen. I'm guessing you don't think that that's a great distinction. I don't think that's a great place to be. Um, <laughs> we are alone, but not necessarily at the top is what you're saying. Yeah. It, there, there's a lot that we've done right where we stand alone, and, and this is not one of those things. A lot of countries have actually looked at our system and learned from it. And in constitutions that have come around later and statutory systems that have come around later have said, ah, we like a lot of what America does, but that seems really <laughs> counterproductive. Hmm. And so they've put practices in place that are actually, some are just a little bit different from what we have and serious improvements, and some are a lot different from what we have. Right, right, right. So talk about states that you, uh, you know, you alluded to with California have just said, this is not the way to go about it. We are going to come up with a different way of drawing districts and electing people. What are some of the states that have done that? Some of the states have done it, and, and it's important to note that 
most of the states that have done it most recently have citizens' initiatives where citizens get to propose laws and changes to the state constitution. Huh, okay. So it's really the citizens that have gotten fed up. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually mostly in the Mountain West, and that's in part because of the possibility of initiatives. So California, Arizona, Washington, Idaho. Um, and you'll notice that they run the gamut of political preferences. Mm, right? Right. This is not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative issue. Right. Um, the fact that Idaho has an independent body to draw its lines and, and one that looks very different from one in California but still does not allow legislators to have the pen hmm. is significant. And that also points to another aspect of changing the rules, and that is there's not one magical silver bullet for everywhere. California system works really well in California, but isn't necessary for a state like Idaho. And Idaho's system works really well in Idaho, but isn't necessary for a state like California. Could you take it away from people altogether because people are corruptible? It's hard to know what people's uh, secret motivations are or if they're taking money on the site. Like, who knows? Could you take it away from people and just say, like, we're going to have a computer figure this out. We're going to tell the computer that 60 percent of the population vote is generally Republican and 40 percent in this particular state, 40 percent is Democrat. And so basically they should come up with districts drawn so that about 60 percent of the representatives are Republican, 40 percent are Democrat. If 80 percent are Democrat, that's kind of a problem and not right. So I get this question a lot. And my general answer is that, A, it's really actually hard to do computationally. But but leaving that aside, let's say we get much better at the technology. Right. The problem is much like having a computer design a tax system. So could you have a computer design a totally objective and non-manipulable system of who pays what taxes? Sure. Would you want it to? No. Because we all have really, really deep instincts about what's fair, Mm -hmm. and those instincts differ. And just letting it run up to a computer. So computer, come up with a tax system, and maybe the computer decides that we all pay $50,000 in taxes whether we can afford to or not. Maybe the computer decides that people whose last name starts with D pay taxes and nobody Mm. else pays taxes. Mm. Um, Those are all totally objective and can't be manipulated, but they're not fair. And it turns out that we have different views about what's fair in the redistricting process, just like we do in the tax process. And the best way to work those out is actually to have humans reconcile those, sometimes in different ways in different parts of a state. Right? In some states, county lines are super important in the Northwest, but don't really mean that much in the Southeast. Hmm. In some states, the tech sector is really important in one part, and the industrial manufacturing sector mm-hmm. is really important in another part. And in another part of the state, there's no real industry that's super important. What's more important are municipal lines. People who live in those places are actually pretty good at drawing districts that represent how real communities conceive of themselves, which is different in different parts of the state. And if you take away the inherent self-interest, the conflict of interest, it's actually possible to reconcile those political choices without leaving it up to a computer that somebody's got a program. Right, right. What's the path that you see us on? You mentioned there's a bunch of states, mostly um, in the West, uh, that have said we're going to draw lines differently in maybe a nonpartisan or bipartisan way. Is that coming to, you know, like a state near you if that's not you? Or is that like a special thing for, you know, certain states or what? What's going to happen? It's coming to a state near you if the citizens want it to. So like everything in politics, it depends on people speaking up and being active. And this one needs an especially big push 
because the status quo benefits the incumbent legislators. And so to move anything needs extra oomph. Right. And so to the extent people care, they can spur change. It is hard work, but it's possible. And it's incredibly important. Uh, so this is infrastructure. And, you know, when President Trump was on the campaign trail, infrastructure and the need to improve infrastructure was one of the things that got bipartisan agreement. It was one right. of the things that people actually said, yeah, you know what? We do need to fix that mm-hmm. because the roads and the sewers and the electrical grid and the Internet, those are all things that we all really don't think much about until they break. And then everybody cares instantly. And we realize how important they are. Elections are the infrastructure of democracy. It's how we get everything else. And most people don't think about it most of the time until it breaks, at which point everybody realizes exactly how much they care. And if you want to see a place where people connect the lines on the map to their daily reality viscerally, look at the school boards. You will never see people care so deeply about lines on a map as you do when you decide to to draw district lines for a school board. Mm. And people feel that, people get it, people Mm -hmm. understand how important it is, and people fight for it. And if they spent that energy actually fighting for other units of Mm -hmm. political geography, which are just as important, um, we're going an awfully long way. Justin Lovett is a law professor. He's the associate dean for research at Loyola Law School, and he's an expert on gerrymandering Justin, thank you so much. This is great. Of course. My pleasure. If you want to check out the cool and scary math of how you turn a party that's in the minority into a party that's in the majority, we've got a guide for you on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. PRI, Public Radio International.